morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. Morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you. And uh, myself, along with Grant, who is just up here, and uh, a few others serve on our leadership team, our team of elders. And uh, before I jump into God's Word, I did just want to remind you that we recently announced that... uh, uh, that you're invited to stay for a few extra minutes after we gather and worship together today. You're welcome to stick around for a few extra minutes. The elders just want to communicate well and update you briefly on a couple of things. This is not a formal congregational meeting, but really just a chance to, for us to communicate well, keep you posted, um, and so that you can continue to pray uh, for all that God has for us as a church family. So we'll talk more about that at the end. Um, but, but let's get started this morning. So we, have, we come this morning to a, a turning point in our, in our scripture passage. And so I was, I was thinking, um, just to prepare ourselves and, and kind of what kind of mindset is going on here, um, I suppose we could come up with lots of examples. You could come up with better examples than me. But those of you that are musicians, perhaps at some point you learn to read music, right? They learn to read music or learn to read chords so that What? Just so they would have the knowledge of, of music. So that what? So they could play it, right? So they could put it into action. Uh, athletes go to, co- go to practice and get coached. They're, they're told things. They're instructed things. They're, they're demonstrated these skills and abilities so that they can what? Put it into action. Play. Go out on the court and improve. Uh, same with students. Students. Take in information. What? Just so that the brain can get bigger and bigger? Or so that what? Yeah, they put into practice that students can apply these things in their lives. That this wouldn't just be head knowledge, but it would result in in improvement and growth and and, and put into practical action. And so, uh, followers of Jesus, we are like that. First of all, I like calling Christians followers of Jesus because even this simple reminder... Followers of Jesus follow. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Simple, but maybe we should think about it. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And I don't just mean like this. Following Jesus. Following Jesus ends up resulting in being more like Jesus. Following Jesus ends up more living out the ways of Jesus, becoming more like him in our words and in our actions. And so uh, followers of Jesus hear the gospel good news. We gather, we study our Bibles, we gather together on Sundays, we hear the gospel good news, the good news that God rescues sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We gather, we study our Bibles, we hear the gospel good news that salvation is a gift of God and available only through putting our trust in Christ. We gather, we hear the good news, followers of Jesus do what? Follow Jesus. And so we hear that good news, and then we need to walk worthy. We're called into following Jesus. We're called to live a life that is worthy of the calling we've received. And so we're in this series of messages that we've called uh, Walk Worthy as we teach our way systematically through the book of Ephesians. And today we come to this turning point. So grab your Bibles if you don't already have them open and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Thanks for bringing your Bible or a device with a Bible app and uh, love you to have your finger in God's word because that is who we want to hear from uh, as we gather together. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, 
we have this turning point in this letter. The letter, the book of Ephesians in your Bible is a letter written by a church leader named Paul to a group of Christians in a town called Ephesus. Thus, they are the Ephesian Christians. And so this letter, um, this is really kind of a pivot point in this letter as we begin chapter four this morning. So let's start this way. Let me read um, the six verses that we'll study together this morning. I'm just gonna read them all the way through and then we'll take a little closer look. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And sometimes I stop here and I I say a prayer for our time in God's word, or I ask for God's help in, in sharing what he has in the scriptures. And sometimes I lead the prayer for us to prepare to hear from him. I'm going to do it differently. I'm just going to stop for a moment. I'm going to pause and leave some silence, and I'm going to invite you, followers of Jesus, take a moment, go to the Lord, ask that God would prepare you to hear from his word, and, uh, and, and ask him to speak to us today through his word. Let's pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so walking back through the passage, taking it a little slower, taking a little closer look, asking God to teach us from his word. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, Paul, uh, this church leader writing to this group of Christians starts with, I therefore, and of course, therefore should tell us we need to look at what's come before. So, um, you know, in recent weeks, we've been studying Ephesians since January. We've been in and out of Ephesians since January. And so really, by teaching books of the Bible passage by passage, we're allowing God to speak to us in his timing and, and bring us to certain uh, passages in his timing. And so um, we've talked, uh, as we've taught whoever's been up here, me or Pastor Ed or others, have taught from Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. Oftentimes, when we've been up here and we've started a sermon, we've we've looked back intentionally at some of this stuff in the early chapters of Ephesians. And so rather than me do that again, help me out for a moment. If you've got your Bible open, flip, look through, scan your eyes through chapters one, two, three, and, and speak out. Give me a phrase, give me a sentence, give me a word, give me a, an indicator of what, what some of the glorious good news truths of God that we have heard in, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Adopted by grace, adopted into God's family, that our salvation includes gaining family. Redemption, 
that God has a plan to rescue and call to himself a people for himself, salvation. What? Yes, we were dead in our sin, and now we've been made alive through Christ. Chapter 2. Excellent, right? Good reminders of the good news. What else do you see? Anything else? Blessed. And, and, and God has spiritual blessings for us that include some of the things we've already mentioned. Yes. Yes. By grace we have been saved. It is a gift of God. That, that beautiful reminder at the end of chapter 2 that our, that our salvation, that being made right with God is not our own effort, our own, our own matching up, but a gift of God's grace. Yeah, so, and we could keep going, but we'll stop there. So really, if we were, you know, the point is, is we want to just think again about we've studied chapters 1, 2, and 3, and before we hit 4 and beyond, we want to remember this incredible list of the glorious riches of, of what is true for us that God has given us through Christ. We want to remember that we're, as we start chapter 4, and when Paul says, therefore, walk worthy, therefore, live a life worthy, we got to remember what comes before. All this good news of what God has done for us, not because of our own efforts, but because of his grace. So, this is why it's a turning point, is because oftentimes people who study Ephesians see that the first three chapters is heavy on, that, on those the glorious riches that what's true about God. And then in verse 4, and there's still going to be great truths about God the rest of the book, but there's kind of a shift here, a turning point to putting it into action, being the musician that not just learns the music, but, but wants to play the music, the athlete that doesn't just hear coach, but wants to live out what coach has to say. Followers of Jesus that, that don't just sit still and are good enough with how far they've come, but recognize that followers of Jesus follow Jesus and become increasingly like Jesus and live out the ways of Jesus. That's where we are at the beginning of chapter 4. Are you with me? Okay. So he says, Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or live your life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So again, this is based on what we've been studying. Based on this good news, here's how you live. Um, the commentary that I was studying this week to help me prepare for this, you know, had all these different ways of saying it. It's saying, okay, we learn the doctrine, we learn the truths, and now we have a duty. We learn the creeds of our faith, and, and now, oh, I forgot the word, we have, there's, a, there's conduct that is called for. Uh, we've learned the wealth of what God has done for us, and now there's a walk, a life that we are to live as a result. There's theology knowledge about God and who he is, and then there's lived out theology or practical theology. So all of those are saying the same thing, right? It's we, what do we know, and then what do we do with it? And that's the shift in this book right now. Church family, do we want to walk worthy? Is that our desire as followers of Jesus? Do we want to walk worthy? And so Paul says, walk worthy. And I don't know about you, but perhaps the next natural question for us is, how? I, I walk worthy, he says. And we say, yeah, I want to walk worthy of Jesus, and he's called me to salvation. How? How do we live a life that is worthy? Well, that's what the rest of Ephesians is about. In a lot of ways, the rest of our study for the next several weeks, as we teach through Ephesians, we will, we will be 
God will address us in several different issues, in several areas, in things that it looks like to live for Jesus. So again, we've been in this book since January, going passage by passage, and today, our calling, yes, you followers of Jesus, you have been called, you are to live out that calling. Our calling certainly includes that we have been called to Christ, called into Christ, called into relationship with him, into faith in him. And partly what we've been called into then and what this next passage addresses is we've been called to unity as a church family, to be, to be unified with fellow brothers and sisters, uh, other followers of Jesus. And so that's where, um, that's where he starts with this practical stuff. And how does the section of unity start? Well, Paul begins by describing character traits that lead to unity. So these next few minutes, we're going to see what Scripture has in verse 2, and we're going to take a closer look at these character traits, and these are character traits that, that lead to unity, that, that contribute to unity, that help bring unity. If, if, God, if we ask God to do the work of cultivating in our hearts and attitudes these kinds of character traits, that will contribute to unity. So verse 1, now I'm, okay, now I'm finally back to the Scripture. you got your Bible open in your lap, your finger in God's Word. Verse 1 told us to walk worthy, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And he continues in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience. We're going to take a closer look at each one of those here in the next few minutes. And um, I was going to say it later, but I want to also say it now because I want to tune our hearts and minds as we consider these character traits. I want you to tune your mind to how countercultural they are. The ways of Jesus are very much often different than the ways of the world. And so as we study these character traits that God wants to cultivate in us that lead to unity among believers, um, notice how countercultural they are, how even maybe counterintuitive they are. If I'm honest about the status of my own heart and mind and what I think I want to do and it's for me and what I get out of it, then perhaps these character traits that God wants to build in us are even counterintuitive in that sense. They go against our flesh, our sinful desires for self. So let's ask God as we think, take a look at humility, gentleness, uh, patience. Let's ask God to build those in us. First, humility. Uh, author and pastor Richard Koken writes this, and I think it'll be on the screen. Being humble means restraining our sense of entitlement to be the focus of other people's care and attention by instead submitting ourselves to others with respect in order to promote their best interests. See also Philippians 2, and in, the, and in the ways of Jesus, to put the needs of others before our own. James 4, 6, it's on the screen. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In, in a book called Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility isn't about putting yourself down or becoming somehow lesser of a person, not less valued in the eyes of God, but humility is about thinking of ourselves less and others more. 
May God cultivate that in you and I. Amen? I need God's transformation there. The next one is gentleness. This could also be translated meekness. You can think that you perhaps have other scriptures that come to mind where, where the word meek is used, and that's often the same term here. Um, another author, pastor named Kent Hughes, explains that, that gentleness or meekness we, we, I, don't know, you know, I don't know what perception comes to your mind when you hear the word meekness, but it's probably not uh, a characteristic that we would typically hold up in American culture. Wow, that guy is sure meek. You know? Gentleness, or translated meekness, Kent Hughes is explaining it's not about weakness. It's about strength under control. There's nothing spineless or timid about meekness. Um, but instead, what does meekness um, uh, communicate to us? Koken, Richard Koken, this will be on the screen. He says, meekness means dealing with other people with kindness rather than roughness, with empathetic compassion rather than demanding force, and with soft encouragement rather than hard bullying. As you look at that quote, I'm going to just remind us again, as we're looking at these characteristic traits that God wants us to grow in, and I remember I asked us to think about how countercultural they are. I mean, isn't some of that description is what more would come natural to us? I'm going to demand it. I'm going to speak up for myself. I'm going to, I'm going to say what needs to be said. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be rough in order to make my point. You know, perhaps, that was, perhaps that's the, what comes most natural to us. Perhaps that's what the world around us would even urge us to communicate in that way. But let's consider the ways of Jesus and how different they can be from the ways of the world. After all, when we think of gentleness and meekness, when we think of this characteristic trait of being gentle or meek, and at first our first impression might be meek, I'm not sure I want to be meek. Well, follower of Jesus do what? Follow Jesus Guess who said what about himself? Jesus in Matthew 11 says, I am gentle, meek, and lowly in heart, humble. Jesus used the same two characteristics about, for himself, about himself. One of the few places in scripture, by the way, we get a lot of scripture about what Jesus teaches and, and what, what Christians ought to do and, and with the good news of the gospel and we get very little insight into the heart of Jesus. And this is one of those places where he describes himself. And he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, a pastor named Dane Ortland writes this. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. Jesus is not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated, he is the most understanding person in the universe. Listen to this. Even if you've been a follower of Jesus a long time, my guess is that your heart could, could use this next picture, imagining this. And if you have, if not a follower of Jesus, picture Jesus in this way. Ortland writes, the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger do we sometimes worry that the posture of Jesus toward us is a pointed finger of what we've done, of how we poss couldn't possibly live up? 
of what he wants to condemn in our lives? The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. You picture that? And Ortland later adds that no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. That's why the verse before he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Look on the screen with me at Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Right before that verse, he says, come to me. There's never been anyone in history more approachable than Jesus. So Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus, look to the example of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are increasingly transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Followers of Jesus live out the ways of Jesus. And so if Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, then may God help us followers of Jesus be gentle and humble. Amen? Then let's take a look at patience. Uh, In the original language, patience is literally translated from a phrase that means long-tempered. We, we often think of short-tempered, right? The translation here that's in the, that in the English is, is rendered as patience is from a, of a word that means long-tempered. In other words, we are to have patience. We are to be long-tempered instead of short-tempered. Richard Koken writes this about patience. Patience, this will be on the screen, I believe. Patience means to be long-suffering, of the faults of others. Again, countercultural, what would be our tendency when we notice the faults of others? Point them out, address them quickly, have those be bigger than our own faults in our mind? Patience means to be long-suffering of the faults of others and slow in seeking to rebuke them, recognizing that spiritual growth takes time and that we are all a work in progress. Church family, may God help us to be long-tempered with others. And you know why? You know what should be the best motivation ever? May God help us to be long-tempered with one another as God has been patient, long-tempered with us. Has God been patient with you? He's been ridiculously patient with me for 46 years. May God help us to be long-suffering of the faults of others, not seeking to rebuke them, and instead recognizing that spiritual growth takes time. So humility, gentleness, patience. Uh, Again, all Somewhat countercultural. They go against the ways of the world. These are not necessarily the characteristics or traits that are held up in American culture. These are not the, what we see happen around us. These are not the way that many people act. So it, it goes against our own hearts and our own flesh and our own sinful desires because our sinful desires are selfish. And, and when we give in to our sinful desires, we, we give in to things that, that put ourselves at the center and that meet my needs and that think of myself first. 
Our world lets us get away with being wildly opinionated, aggressive, self-promoting, and rough around the edges. But the passage says, look at the end of verse 2. We didn't even get to this part. We talked about humility and gentleness and patience. But the passage says that love should be central in our interactions and relationships. So that we can bear with one another. The way we are long-suffering, the way we can be gentle with one another, the way we can find humility and put the needs of others ahead of ourselves is because we need to, as God does toward us, take the posture of love. Have love be central. Have love be overwhelming to all of our interactions. The truth of verse 2 is that unity within a church family begins with our character, with the attitude of our hearts. And so obeying the scripture here, followers of Jesus follow Jesus, obeying this scripture means becoming more like Jesus. And, and uh, the same author that I've been quoting a couple times, Richard Koken, gives some examples of becoming more like Jesus and how that could look in your Christian life and in a Christian church family. Koken's examples, it can happen as being, becoming more like Jesus can happen as we seek the Spirit's help to recognize and repent of the selfishness that was perhaps indulged in our upbringing. Becoming more like Jesus can happen as we recognize and repent of those poisonous influences of Western education that encourage self-promotion and attention-seeking. Becoming more like Jesus can happen as we recognize and repent of the pride of our hearts which make us demanding and consumeristic. He goes on to suggest, in our conversations, we could try to inquire humbly. There's that word, humbly. We could try to inquire humbly after other people's triumphs and troubles before we articulate our own. Before church meetings, we could resolve to gently allow others to have the first say and the last word. At our church gatherings, we could try to rejoice patiently in seeing others welcomed and cared for instead of asserting our own needs. Becoming more like Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart. And what's interesting when you think about the topic of unity in a church family or among believers is you think of, if you look around the room, it doesn't take you very long to consider the diversity among believers, the differences I mean, think of all the ways that we could list differences. We've got male and female. We've got age differences. We've got uh, upbringing differences. We've got background differences. We've got hobby differences. We've got political preference differences. We've got, you know, philosophy of, of, of ministry differences. We, we, we could go on and on. We've got racial differences. We've got uh, on and on. In a church family... There is a lot of diversity. There's a lot of difference, especially now if you expand that to believers everywhere. There's a lot of diversity. But when the spiritual fruits, when God, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, recognizing we can't save ourselves, when we become a follower of Jesus, when we give our life, we receive God's free gift of salvation by receiving Jesus, 
The Holy Spirit lives within us and begins to transform us from the inside out. And part of the Spirit changing us from the inside out and making us a new person is, is these fruits that will start to be noticed in our life. In other words, results, right, of that change that's happening. These, these fruits that will come increasingly true in our lives. Well, there's a lot of differences among us. But as God does his work and as the spiritual fruits of humility and gentleness and patience, as those reign, as those take, take most importance, as those are the default ways that we interact with each other, we have increasing unity. And, and Christian unity is important because Christian unity brings great glory to God. What a, what a, what a way to show the world about our great God than to be, find unity in the midst of our diversity. So there we go. We spent most of our time in this passage looking at those characteristic traits that God, those characteristics that God wants to cultivate in our life. Let's look uh, at what the origin, what's the foundation of our unity? What is the, the where, where does this unity come from? Look back with me in, this, in the passage at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What word did you hear several times? One. You want to talk about unity? Seven uses of one. To drive home the point of our foundation of our unity, where does the foundation of our unity come from? In those verses, we have reference to the Trinity, to the Godhead three in one. We have references in there to our one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Seven uses of the word one to drive home the importance of unity and to show us that the foundation of our unity is in our triune God himself. In Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the unity that we have among Christians, the unity we have among believers, and the unity we have as a church family comes to us by the work of, of God, three in one. Each member of the Trinity, we see in those, in those seven uses of the word one, if we reread verses four through six, we see that every member, Father, Son, Spirit of the Trinity contributes to bringing unity. We have one Spirit. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the Holy Spirit that lives within you, follower of Jesus. We have one Lord, that is, the God-man Jesus Christ, who came and lived the life that we cannot live and was without sin and who died the death that we deserve, the death that paid the penalty for our sin, and he was raised again to new life, showing that we too, humans, can have new life in Jesus. That's our one Lord. And there's one God and Father, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So we have, we have these character, character traits that lead to unity. We, have, we, we certainly see in this passage the origin, or the foundation for our unity, comes from our triune God. And so then, what do we do with this passage? What does God have for us in this passage? Well, verse 3 is a charge to build unity. So we've got these characteristics of unity that lead to unity. We've got the origin of our unity. And now we're considering this charge. This, this, we are given to go and pursue unity, to build unity. Verse 3 says, Be eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word that's translated in our English Bibles into eager comes from a root word that means make haste. Make haste. In other words, there's a sense here, it's, it's be zealous. There's urgency. Do something about this. Pursue unity. Maintain unity. Be diligent in our efforts to pursue, to maintain unity among believers. Do, your, do your, the most you can. Work at it. I might even go as far as to say fight for it. <laughs> That's going to feel a little funny. Fight for unity. Fight for Peace. God's goal for us is peace. We see that uh, in, in, the, in the passage in verse 3. To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we see it also in Romans 12, 18. That's on the screen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with those around you. And, and, and be eager to do that, be eager to maintain, give some urgency and, and give some direction to us to, to go after it, to pursue that unity by looking for peace. And so what are some things that are, here's where we're going to finish. Here's where I want to ask God to stir in our hearts and to show us what he has for us and to explain where he wants us to grow is, is what does it look like to be peacemakers? Peacemakers are honest. Peacemakers are honest, and there's a couple of different scenarios. Peacemakers are honest when the fault is theirs, when I have done wrong, when I have hurt someone, there's an opportunity to be honest, to own that, to go to the person and to make it right. And, and when you've been hurt by someone else, there's an opportunity to be honest, to talk with them humbly, gently, patiently, but to be honest and to seek making things right. Peacemakers are honest. Not pretending things are okay when things are not. Our tendency might be that way, right? Our tendency might be to, ah, just, I'm gonna just, it's okay. Things are okay. But peacemakers are honest. Peacemakers are willing to risk the pain of seeking forgiveness or giving honest feedback. Well, I guess that's what I already just said. There's the opportunity to be honest. There's an opportunity for us to risk pain by, by being honest about our shortcomings or our failures or our sin. And there's, a, and there's an opportunity to risk the pain of going to someone knowing that the conversation is more important than the silence, that the conversation could be more fruitful and glorifying to God than the silence or ignoring it. Peacemakers pursue peace. There, there, there are resources for you, followers of Jesus. There is God's word to guide you in seeking to find peace among, between you and others. So we look to God's word. We go to other believers for help so that we can be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit so that we can put the effort in so that we can do what it takes. Peacemakers pursue peace. So let's ask God to help us in these areas. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that we get to pray to the one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Father, we lift our eyes to you, 
the one God who is over all, our Heavenly Father. Thank you for being a God who loves, and because you loved us, we can love others. Father, thank you for being a Father who cares for us in so many ways, who brings comfort to us, who watches over us, including um, what Grant prayed for earlier, including one of the many ways that you care for us and watch over us is, is that you've blessed us with the opportunity to live in the country that we live in. We're thankful to you for your care for us. We're thankful for you, to you for the, the men and women who have given their lives. We pray your comfort upon their families and we pray your continued care for those who fight. And Father, because there is unity between Father, Son, and Spirit, because our source for unity is in you, because the Trinity is unified, God, would you grant us unity as a church family? As you build in us character that leads to unity, would you build in us humility and gentleness and patience. And God, would you empower us then to eagerly maintain unity, to work toward peace, to follow your commands, to look to your scriptures, to get the help of others so that we can glorify you in our lives by seeking unity, by seeking peace. God, we're thankful for your your work in our lives. We're thankful for an opportunity to gather as a church family, to study your word, to hear from you. And God, as we often, as we often do, I pray that, that your word would not just go in one ear and out the other. God, I pray that we would not be satisfied to just take in information, but I pray that as, this, as we read this pivot point in this letter, that we would want to live a life worthy that we would take what we know, the glorious good news of the gospel, and we would desire to live a life that is worthy, that we would take all that you've done for us and all of our thankfulness and, and channel that into living for you, into living out the ways of Jesus, that we would be increasingly like Jesus in our words and our actions. God, would you do that in our midst? Would you do that for us individually? Would you do that for us as a church family? We love you. We follow you. We want to serve like you. we want to serve you. We want to be increasingly like you. Change us so that we can glorify you in every way. In Jesus' name, Amen.